in the midst of this um, Love Beyond Belief series, in my memory suddenly this week, I went back 20 years uh, to a conversation that I had with a friend of mine when we were out one night. I don't remember how we got into this conversation, but we were talking about the fact that the, the two of us had earned ourselves a bit of a reputation for being rather um, vigorous theological debaters. We were always debating what we believed with each other and quite often debating what we believed with other people as well. And we, we ended up in this conversation about unpacking why it is that we were, well, we were like that. And at one point, kind of summarizing the whole thing, my friend says to me, he says, you know, at the end of the day, I guess I just look at the world this way. If I believe something, then it's worth it for me to believe it 100%. And I said, I totally agree. And he said, and if I'm going to believe something 100%, then I'm going to defend my belief with 100% of what I have. And I said, I totally agree. And he said, and if I'm going to defend my belief with 100% of everything that I have, then I'm going to fight you to the death until you convince me that you're right and I'm wrong. And I looked at him and said, I totally agree. And that was the trajectory that I lived on for a long stretch of my Christian life. The trajectory that we're now trying to speak into in this series called Love Beyond Belief. Where, as Jeff reminded us last week, what we're really talking about is what it looks like for us as those who follow Jesus in our community to be people who are willing to live in loving relationship with people who see the world in radically different ways than we do. To, to extend to everybody a love that is unconstrained and unconfined and unconditional on what other people think or believe. To treat other people with nothing but love, no matter what it is that they believe. And, and as a part of this conversation, as uh, Jeff mentioned last week, um, some people have wondered along the way whether what it is that we're talking about in order to be that kind of community is diminishing the value of belief. Jeff chalked it up to his own miscommunication back in September that what he was communicating is that it doesn't matter uh, in our community anymore what you believe. We're just going to love. That's what the whole thing is going to be about love. And, and you know what, honestly, I, I, as I've thought about it this week, I really don't think that it all has to be laid at the feet of Jeff's miscommunication. He's a fabulous communicator. I began to wonder this week whether the question doesn't emerge because we live in a culture, we live in a society that is faced with the same dilemma. This is what we're talking about in our community, how people with wildly different backgrounds and wildly different worldviews and wildly different perspectives on just about everything can live together peaceably in harmony. And, and the way, because in Canada, right, we don't have a culture, we have a multiculture. That's who we are. And the way we've decided to deal with that as Canadians in our society en masse, is to say that we're going to live together in peace by committing ourselves to two fundamental convictions. The first one is this, that there is no such thing as capital T truth. There's only small t truth. That I have my truth because I see the world from my perspective, and you have your truth because you see the world through your perspective, but my truth isn't truer than your truth, and your truth isn't truer than my truth, and so I won't force you to believe my truth, and you don't force me to believe your truth, and then we'll all just get along acknowledging that we each have our own truth. It's called relativism. 
The second commitment that our Canadian society is built on is the commitment to tolerance. That since there's no such thing as capital T truth, something that's true for everybody, there's just my truth and your truth, then everybody's truth has an equal place in our society. Everybody's truth is equally permissible, equally valid, and equally um, respected in the marketplace of ideas, that we tolerate each other's truths. And this is how, you know, an hour away from the most multicultural city in North America, this is how people from such wildly divergent backgrounds living in such close proximity to each other live in peace and harmony with each other. That's the strategy for Canadian society. And it's a strategy that fundamentally doesn't work. And it's not that hard to, uh, to demonstrate that it doesn't work. All you need to do is go online and just go to the comments section of any online post about the Syrian refugee crisis. And go there and read the comments to find out whether people believe that every opinion ought to be respected and treated equally. Because what you'll find in the comments section is you will find some small t truths that are just not capital T truth. All Muslims are terrorists. Just not true. You will find some ideas there that are not worthy of being tolerated in the marketplace of ideas. I saw one post. It was, a, it was a, from the States, but it was, uh, you can find it in Canada too. It was a, it was a poster uh, on a telephone pole in Louisiana that said, come to City Hall on Wednesday night so we can stop the Muslim invasion. The Muslim invasion. That is not an idea worthy of being tolerated in our public discourse. No, the, the way to live in harmony together in a love beyond belief kind of a way is not to devalue truth. Actually, the way to live in harmony in a love beyond belief kind of way is, is to revalue truth. To acknowledge that when it comes to the Christian faith, that truth is central and truth matters and truth is actually non-negotiable. In, in John chapter 8, verse 31, it says this, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said this, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. In, in following Jesus, the truth matters because it is by the truth that we are set free from the power of sin, the self-destructive force of evil in our lives and in our society. It is the truth that sets us free to become as fully human as Jesus Christ himself was, the most fully human being who's ever lived. It's the truth that sets us free to fully love God and to love ourselves and to love each other and to love the world. It's the truth that makes that possible. Jesus says that you'll know the truth if you hold to my teachings. The, the word hold in Greek, it's the word meno. And it means to remain or abide. Jesus essentially says, those who know the truth are those who set up camp in the midst of my teaching. Those who situate themselves immovably in what it is that I teach. If you locate yourself in my teaching and you live there, you make yourself at home there, you will know the truth. That's how you know the truth. And the truth will set you free. If anything is non-negotiable to Jesus, it is the power and importance of the truth in setting us free. No, no, we don't, we don't become a love beyond belief kind of community by devaluing truth. We actually, by, by adopting weaker or shallower convictions, 
No, I think we actually become a love beyond belief community by developing deeper and stronger convictions. Deeper and stronger convictions than any of us hold today. Because I think many of us, most of us, all of us, hold convictions about what is true when it comes to following Jesus that we have not fully explored, that we have not, um, that we have settled for a shallower understanding than what we had ought. Some of the convictions that we hold, we hold merely because of the opinions of the people around us, the people who have shaped the way that we think. And we've kind of absorbed other people's opinions and adopted them as our own and allowed those to become our convictions. We have to go deeper than that. Some of us have um, just kind of gone by our own personal experience. Well, this is what I've experienced as true. And so now I'm going to take my experience and I'm going to hold that to be the truth. It's kind of that sort of 15 minutes in heaven phenomenon. I had this experience of heaven, and so now this is what I believe about the afterlife. There, there are some of us who have developed convictions simply because something makes sense to us. Well, that doesn't make sense to us. This makes sense to us, and on the basis purely of our sense, whether common or not, that's how we decide what we believe. There are some of us who have rooted ourselves in the scriptures, in the way we've read the scriptures, but we've read the scriptures divorced from all of those other things. And we've lived with convictions that are not as deep and as robust and as strong as the convictions we ought to hold. 250 years ago, a man by the name of John Wesley lived, who became one of actually the founders of the whole evangelical movement. And John Wesley used to say that when it comes to discerning what is true in life, there are four voices that ought to be sitting together around the table. The first is the voice of Scripture, and it's first because Scripture comes first in the way that we discern truth. I think um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's summarized beautifully when it says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. And what did the scriptures do? They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. It comes from the deepest part of who God is. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I read this verse over and over and over again back in our August series because I believe this is just absolutely foundational to the kind of community that we have to become. That it's scripture that's able to make us wise for salvation, that's able to help us understand the life that God is calling us to and then give us the wisdom to live it out in our daily lives. And it does it, we talked about this in August, it does it by confronting the way that we think and correcting our false beliefs and, and teaching us what to believe. And it does it by confronting our behaviors and, and kind of confronting our bad behaviors and encouraging better behaviors. And if we allow scripture to shape us, then we become the people who are able to live the life that God has called us to live, fully equipped for every good thing God has called us to do. That scripture is fundamental to how we form our convictions about what is really true. But there's a problem with saying that. And the problem with saying that, as my 
the beautiful students from the current that I spent time with last weekend as we had this very conversation. In, the word, in their words, they said the problem with that is that this book is big and it's complicated and it's hard to understand. I mean, there are, there are language issues. We actually don't read the scriptures. We read a translation of the scriptures. And anybody who's ever translated anything knows that there's always something lost in translation. That this, the Bible gives us a beautiful gist of what it is that God was trying to say. An accurate gist, but a gist nonetheless. There are cultural differences. It was written from a Middle Eastern perspective that we don't share. There are values held by the biblical writers that we can't see in the text because we Westerners don't share those values. Even if we did, there are historical issues because we live in the 21st century and they were writing in the 1st century and even longer ago. And they had different historical questions, different historical issues, things that we don't even Um, that we don't wrestle with and we don't even understand fully what they were wrestling with. And even if we could bridge all of those issues, there's this beautiful passage, encouraging to me anyway, where Peter, the apostle, is writing about his friend Paul. And these are two guys who share a gender, a culture, language, geography. They grew up in the same place, the same time, in the same culture, the same context, the same values, the same worldview, the same perspective. They shared so much in common. And Peter says of his friend Paul, some of the stuff that he writes is just hard to understand. Scripture is the place where we start to form our convictions, but Scripture isn't enough because Scripture is so hard to understand, which is why John Wesley said we have to interpret Scripture in the context of community. That's the second voice around the table, the community of faith, the church. Did you know, like just think about this for a second. The Bible was never actually intended to be read by individuals. Ever thought about that before? In fact, it wasn't even possible for the Bible to be read by individuals privately until 1440 with the invention of of the printing press. The Bible was written to be read in community, especially in worship, in 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 the community that forms around worship. The Bible was intended to be read with all of the voices bringing their diverse perspectives into the conversation so that we all together, reading the scriptures together in community, can figure out better than any one of us what it is that that God is saying in the scriptures. Which is why we need each other. We need the church. We need our church. We need our denomination. We need people from other denominations. We need people of faith from other cultures. People who love Jesus and submit to the authority of scripture, but who see the world completely differently than we do. We need to hear voices throughout Christian history to help give shape to what it is that we believe. We need a diversity of voices to understand the scriptures better. Wesley said it's not just scripture, secondly, read in community, but thirdly, uh, we need science. We need common sense. We need reason. We need to think well. Until the 1600s, everybody in the church, official church doctrine, would have read a verse like Ecclesiastes 1 verse 5. It says this, the sun rises and the sun sets and then hurries back to where it rises. The church would have read that verse unilaterally as confirming the popular scientific model of the day that the center of the universe was the earth and that the sun revolved around the earth. Until a man named Galileo 
found himself a telescope and he stared up into the stars and for all intents and purposes, he proved that actually the universe doesn't work that way. That the sun is fixed and it's the earth that moves around the sun. And the church, as the result of Galileo's scientific discovery based on the mathematics of Copernicus and Kepler, um, based on Galileo's scientific discovery, the church had to change the way it read scripture. And that sent ripples of theology all the way through the church about the place of humanity in the cosmos and all sorts of theological ramifications to how the church read passages like this because, because science brought a perspective that forced the church to change the way that it reads. In 1977, an evangelical Christian professor at Wheaton College named Arthur Holmes wrote a book called All Truth is God's Truth. And Holmes says that wherever truth is to be found, whether in politics or ecology or economics or philosophy or psychology or sociology, anthropology, biology, physics, wherever truth is to be found, if it can be demonstrated to be true, then it belongs to God because God, because God is the source of all truth. And all truth ought to be allowed to be a part of the conversation of how we understand this truth. Wesley says it's scripture, yes, foundationally. But scripture read in community, listening also to the voices of science and reason. And fourthly, listening as well to our personal experiences. Um, there's this example in the Proverbs of the proverbial writer having an experience. He said he walked past this vineyard and the whole vineyard was overgrown with weeds and it was run down. And, and he said, I saw this vineyard and I reflected on what I had seen and I come, came to the place where I realized that um, a little bit of laziness, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, he said, and poverty will come on you like an armed bandit. I had an experience that I reflected on and my experience revealed to me something that was profoundly true. That shapes the way I live. That shapes the, how I understand the way the world works. It wasn't biblically true. That truth wasn't found anywhere in scripture. It was, it was an experience that was true that didn't contradict anything in scripture and actually ended up becoming a part of scripture. Jesus says, anyone who's put their faith in me is filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. The Spirit will guide our experiences towards understanding deeper truth. My fear for, not fear, I don't fear, but for our community, I don't think the issue is that we have convictions that are too strong and too deep and we need to kind of let them go. I think the greater issue is that we need convictions that are stronger and deeper than we have ever considered before. But the question is, isn't that then the source of the problem? Right? Isn't that why we fight? If, if something is worth believing, it's worth believing 100%. If it's worth believing 100%, it's worth defending 100%. If it's worth defending 100%, I will fight you to the death until you convince me that you're right and I'm wrong. Isn't that the root of the problem? The strength of convictions that cause us to fight. The convictions are not the problem. The problem in a love beyond belief kind of paradigm is not having strong, deep convictions. The problem is how we hold our convictions. We need to hold our convictions in a way that is governed by love. 
Uh, this verse won't be on the screen, but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, you can know everything about everything when it comes to faith, but if you don't have love, you don't know anything. Love has to govern our convictions. In a way, first of all, that is governed by our love for each other and our love for the people around us that causes us to hold our convictions with humility. With humility. In, in Romans 12, verse 3, it says this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. With respect to the convictions that we hold, I think Paul would want to say is don't overestimate how right you are about what you believe. Don't think of yourself more highly then you ought. Don't confuse the strength of your convictions with the correctness of your convictions. Right? I say to people all the time, I'm always certain, I'm just not always right. I once took a class with a world-renowned New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, one of the most important voices in evangelical scholarship today. N.T. Wright began the class by pleading with us as his students. He said, listen, at every turn, I want you to ask me questions. Ask me hard questions. Push back on everything that I say. Disagree with me every opportunity you can. I want you to throw up your hand and say, yeah, what about this? And what about that? And Dr. Wright, you clearly haven't read this person's writings because they are disproving what you say. He says, I want you to, to disagree with me at every opportunity because, and this is the statement that caught my attention, because, he said, 30% of everything that I believe is wrong. And I don't know which 30% it is. And your disagreement with me gives me hints and clues about where I need to go back and think better about what I believe. He says, this is your chance to teach me what I need to learn. The idea that the preeminent New Testament scholar in the evangelical world today would stand in front of me and say, I need you to teach me because 30% of everything I believe is wrong struck me as maybe the most humble and mature thing I've ever heard in my entire life. It actually reminded me, not to overplay it, but reminded me a little bit of Socrates. Socrates, just before the end of his life, came to the conclusion that he must be the wisest person in all of Athens because he was the only philosopher in Athens who was fundamentally convinced that he didn't know anything. It seems to me that there is a profound amount of maturity in saying, I know that I don't know everything. And I don't even know where I'm wrong. So I need you to teach me. I think this is what Paul is getting at. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when he says this. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. Everyone has knowledge. Everybody has access to truth. And everybody has access to different truth. He says, but knowledge puffs up while, while love builds up. Now listen to this. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Paul says, if you think you know something, that is clear evidence that you're off the track. You're off the rails. Because the person who is actually pressing into true knowledge about Jesus is vitally aware of everything that they, there is lots of things that they don't know. I right? just think about it. How, how arrogant 
does a person have to be to believe that everything that they currently hold as belief is true? Right? Remember back in August, I talked about the, that 40 book series, there are more now, but that 40 book series that three views on this and four views on that and five views on this and so on. Um, and I did the math and I said there were more than 17 trillion different options on what to believe. How, how arrogant would a person have to believe to believe that of those 17 trillion options, they're the one who had figured out the right combination. That everything that we believe is right and anyone who disagrees with us must be wrong. Came across a cartoon recently that I loved and I put it up on the screen. And you can see in the cartoon, there's this, this picture, the chart, right? The chart is, is graphing the whole history of the church from 1 AD, which I guess is the beginning of Jesus' life or whatever. Jesus is the beginning point. And all of the church splits and the divisions and the denominations and all the different ways the church was practiced and faith was thought out and conceptualized and all the different variations and permutations and combinations of what faith looks like. And this guy's pointing to the end of one of those little lines that he circled and he says, and this is where we came along and we got it all figured out. We finally got it right. And then that little person says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. All right, this is, my fear is that this is the attitude that we live with. And I'm gonna tell you, this is the attitude that I'm now confessing to you that I know I have lived with. Somebody sat in my office two weeks ago and looked me in the eye and said, back in August, you said over and over again that we don't have to agree with you. And I appreciated the fact that you said that. But then he said, but the way then that you described what you believe and what other people believe made me feel stupid for disagreeing with you. I was devastated that I would have made somebody feel stupid for holding a position that's not the same as mine. And I just want to say to you now, to everybody who's listening, if I have ever made you feel stupid, I am so sorry. If I have ever made you feel like your beliefs are not welcome, that your beliefs are not accepted, that, you're, that you should somehow change your beliefs, that they should match mine, or that your beliefs are somehow inferior to mine, or I... I deeply and profoundly apologize. Because that's not what it looks like to hold our convictions with humility. What it looks like is for us to live in relationship with each other where the message that you receive from me and the message I receive from you is, I'm glad that you have different convictions than me. I'm glad that you believe what you believe and that it's different than what I believe because then when we engage in dialogue with each other, we can both get better at understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's the kind of community I want us to become, where we hold deep and strong convictions, but we hold them lightly and in humility because we love each other so much that we believe that everybody else has value to offer to help me learn what it means to follow Jesus. Here's the second thing that I think we need to be convinced of, and I'm just gonna do this quickly. Love has to govern the way we hold our convictions in the sense that our life has to be dictated by our love for God and not by our convictions. I grew up with too much of my life, and nobody taught me this. This was a place I came to by myself, that, that I came to this conviction that what my faith was, my faith was a set of beliefs. 
In fact, I, I read a theologian from 100 years ago who said that the, the Christian faith is a set of beliefs that the apostles handed down and those who believe those beliefs are Christians and those who don't believe those beliefs aren't Christians. And I lived for far too long with that picture of Christianity, that what it meant to be a Christian was to get all my beliefs correct. In fact, I saw a blog post this week. The title was, Doctrine Matters, Your Eternity Depends on It. The implication being that if you get some of your beliefs wrong, that actually jeopardizes your eternity in some way. That the Christian faith is all about getting all of our beliefs right. If the truth sets you free, then error jeopardizes your faith. And what we end up with is this Jenga tower of belief that we call Christian faith. And if we pull out, if we lose too many of the beliefs, if we're wrong about too many things, we're pulling out those individual tiles and the whole tower gets shaky. And if we're wrong about too many things, the whole thing just comes apart. And we live in this fear of being wrong, which is why I personally, why I reacted so strongly and debated so vigorously with people because I was afraid of being wrong because I thought being wrong would jeopardize my faith. And the truth of the matter is your Christian faith contains beliefs but is not defined by your beliefs. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. In my relationship with Krista, I know her in two separate, different, yet related ways. I know lots of things about Krista. I've been learning about Krista for the last 14 years that we've been in relationship with each other. And I'm learning lots of things about her and I continue to learn new things about her and I expect that I will continue to learn things about her for the entire rest of our married life. I'm gonna constantly be learning things about Krista. Some things that I think I know about Krista are gonna prove to be wrong and and other people will know things about Krista that I don't know and, and there are lots of things to know about Krista. But my marriage is not constituted by what I know about my wife. And neither is any friendship or your relationship with your kids. No relationship is rooted in what we know about the other person. My marriage is rooted in the fact that I know her. Not that I know about her, but that I know her. I know her more deeply and intimately than anybody else on the planet. I know her in this deep and intimate way that inspires me to love her. And the more that I love her, the more I'm compelled to serve her. And the strength of my marriage is not measured by the number of things that I accurately know about her. The strength of my marriage is measured by the depth to which I know and love and serve her. And those two things are radically different. And yes, there are things that are essential and core truths of Christianity. The church for all of its history, last 1700 years, has said the Apostles' Creed is one summary of the things that are core and essential, the things that must be agreed upon as central to to the faith, to a Christian faith. But that is not how my Christian faith is defined. My Christian faith, while I believe those things, my Christian faith is defined by my love and devotion and service to Jesus Christ. And this is the invitation of a community that loves beyond belief. That yes, we would hold strong and deep convictions about what we believe is profoundly true about what it means to know and to love and to follow Jesus Christ. But that our beliefs would not define the truthfulness of our faith. That our beliefs would not be the definition of our faith. 
but that we would hold those beliefs in a way that is governed by love. The love for other people that in humility says, I want to learn from your diverse perspective. I want to sit and I want to listen and I want to understand how you see things so that I can grow because of you. And a faith that's governed by God's love for us in a way that has invited us into this depth of love and knowledge and service that our whole lives are just consumed not by knowing about Jesus, but by knowing him and loving him and serving him. And our prayer in this series and our prayer for this whole era is that God would make us into that kind of church. So would you pray that with me as I pray? God of faith, would you deepen our faith so that we may bear witness to the truth about Jesus in the world? God of hope, would you strengthen our hope so that we may be signposts to your transforming presence in the world? God of love, Would you kindle our love so that in a fragile and divided world, we may be the signs of faith, hope, and love which we share in Jesus Christ. Amen.